On May 2nd, 1957, an ex-boxer, soldier, and chauffeur, Tevito Genovese, makes an unsanctioned attempt on the life of Luciano mob boss Frank Costello, an attempt that fails dismally. It is a move that should end the career and the life of any ordinary up-and-coming underworld hopeful, but it is only the beginning for a man that is anything but ordinary, a man who will take failure and use it to catapult to the top of the Genovese family, a man who defies conventional mob wisdom at almost every turn, who shuns the high-fashion, low-key persona of the mysterious mobster in lieu of a filthy bathrobe, public ramblings, and frequent visits to psychiatric hospitals. A man who has the FBI spinning in circles, wondering if he is the most powerful boss in New York or a mentally incapacitated vagabond. This is the story of Vincent the Chin Giganti. I wouldn't know a gunman if I saw one. Gangster era stuff. Five dudes of public enemies bring a rain of terror and baffle police. How did this famous gangster treat you? He treated me wonderful. This is what I'm telling you, what I'm exposing. This is my doom, 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 doom. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Bill. 2021. Isn't everything different? It is. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's already so much better. I, I am in awe of how much better it is. Yes, not. Well, what, what, what did happen in the new year is I finally got uh, Spotto's book in. Great. How was it? Yeah. Oh, it was, it's good. Cause you know, like at first I'm a little worried cause we did the show and we did the show based on a million interviews that we watched. And then of course the two and a half hours that we talked to him. So I felt like we pretty much got his life down, but you know, it's not going to be a book's worth. But uh, as I read the book and followed along, our podcast is a perfect supplement to it because in some cases we mentioned something and he goes into more detail, but then in other cases, he glossed over it and we got more detail out of him and stuff. So it's it's really cool the way it worked out. If you haven't got the book yet, you really should. There are so many stories. And I tried to tell people about how smart he was, you know, and how uh, active, like, yeah. and, he's, and he still is. But he chronicles his life and there's times when he's just walking around with his buddy and they're broke. And his friend will say, write me a check for a thousand bucks. And this is the old days, so the check... You have a couple of days, right? Right. So he floats the check. They get a thousand bucks. They pull a scam. They end up with ten thousand dollars. They they cover the check, and but they're just walking around all the time, like looking for some crime to commit. You know, it's it's funny, and they're always breaking into something. They're always robbing something, and it's not the kind of uh, story where they're going to go around poking people's eyeballs out and eating them or anything like that. But it, they, you know, they're kind of like good guy gangsters, and. Uh, to a point. Yeah, I mean, they're doing armed robbery, things like that and stuff, but no one's getting nah. no one's getting put in the wood chipper, you know, and it's, it's, it's a good story. And it reads really fast. Like, I'm a slow reader, and I got through it in two or three days, you know, in my off time. But a uh, really great book. I enjoyed the hell out of it. I'm going to write a nice, uh, a nice review for it on uh, Amazon. Very nice. Good. Yeah. So I'll do it up because I just finished it. And then uh, I got Coyote's book in the other day. So I'm ready to start that. And uh, pretty soon we'll have a show on Coyote and do his life kind of like we did the Spado one. Looking forward to that. Good. Well, nice to hear that about Ori. Just just get the book. It's it's great and really funny and fast paced. And just he's, he's a great guy. Okay. In the news from Reuters, we had uh, some action over in Italy with the Italian mob. And uh, Re brought this to my attention. So we're going to let her do uh, In the News. Well, 
I just looked at the date and it says 2019. Do we still want to do it? It's old. Apparently. No, we don't want to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I'm looking at the top. It says December 19th, 2019. I'm like, oh. I thought you were giving me some fresh stuff. No, I thought I was too. (laughs) Happy New Year, 2019. (laughs) Well, this would have been 2020, so I'm a year late on the news. Okay. Sorry about that. What are we going to talk about? How about them Browns? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> what what happened to the Pittsburgh Steelers? Uh, it just uh, they got the tables turned on them. It's never like I said before the show, totally unprecedented. Ass kicked by the Browns at a playoff game. It's never happened before. They don't know how to handle it. You know the first snap that went over his head. They were like, come on, no big deal, no big deal. Then it's another one. Neither is that, and neither was that, and it's 28 to nothing. There I love you go. it. I love it. I, I, you know, I like the Browns. I, I I like my Steelers better, but what the hell. No, no. Good for Cleveland, I say. Good for Cleveland. It is. So, uh, Gigani. Vinny the Chin. Yeah, interesting character because uh, we kind of covered him in the Vito Genovese episode. And I would really recommend anybody that's listening to us go back and listen to, you know, every single podcast, but especially Genovese. Isn't that the one where we kind of like recapped and tied a bunch of things together? Yes, we did. I was actually involved there. So if you're only going to listen to one podcast in this row, I would listen to that one first. But we're moving on to Gigani, and we were kind of clowning around about him at the time, because if you just had a snapshot of the way we cover him there, you'd never guess what he was going to be. And I'd heard so many times that he was the boss of bosses. And I'm like, wait a minute, there's not supposed to be a boss of bosses. Like, how did he get there? You know, and like, why do they think that he's a leader of the Genovese family? How does that make him, you know, a boss of right. bosses? Right. Okay, partners in crime. I'm going to keep it simple this year. It's a new year, new me. I'm not going to make fun of, uh, of the people I introduce. And uh, actually, we got a whole new platform. We're not even at the uh, Partners in Crime Roundtable anymore. We're online, in in the cloud, as it were. And uh, hopefully this works out. If it sounds like shit, you won't even be hearing this. So let's introduce yourself. We got our narrator extraordinaire, Zach Griffith. Of course. Great to be back. Great to be back. Been a while. And back by popular demand, Anne-Marie Giuliano. Great be back as well love being a part of this uh you're freshly tattooed i am i got well i already had a tattoo but i got some new ink over the holidays and um one of them brought me to tears not due to pain or anything i don't think they hurt at all when you get them but one of them is a heart and the heart the two sides are each of my boys um fingerprints joined together to make a heart so that's pretty emotional and I just feel like I have a part of them with me all the time and I really like that and the other one is a Celtic symbol uh, for mother and child and we did it in some beautiful peacock colors so yeah loving them all I thought you were going to say it's a heart and each side of the heart is a butt cheek yeah that's how we did wow. it wow so <laughs> yeah that's exactly what it is but shout out uh, Shout out to uh, my tattooist, Monty Ag over at Vault 74. So they did a great job. A couple people uh, texted me and asked me what you look like. It's it's my sister, so you got to picture my head on a woman's body, and that's basically what you get. Right. Yeah, right. that's that's what I see in the mirror every morning, unfortunately. <laughs> hey, who wouldn't want that? 
Uh, yeah, who, who wouldn't? All right, we got a big story. I'm excited to get to it. So let's get started. All right. Vincent Luis Gigante is born on March 29th, 1928 to Italian immigrants Salvatore Gigante and Yolanda Gigante. His father was a watchmaker by trade and his mother worked as a seamstress. One of five children, Vincent had three brothers, Mario, Pasquale, and Ralph, follow him into a life of crime, while the white sheep of the family, Luis, went rogue and became a Catholic priest. Damn you, Luis. One of the many distinctions that set Gigante apart from his contemporaries is the origin of his nickname, The Chin. Whereas most gangsters acquire their aliases from the criminal associates, Gigante's was christened by his mother. Yolanda affectionately refers to him as Chinzino, an Italian form of Vincent. I almost forgot. I, I got a little nugget on this. They had another child that died. I think they were traveling abroad or something and their baby died. And guess what the baby's name was? Chinzino. Vincent. So Vincent uh-huh. died. And then they go ahead and name another kid comes along. They're like, eh, Vincent's free. And they named him Vincent. I thought that was really odd. I've yeah. seen that, though, multiple times. Well, hell, look at George Foreman. All his kids, are, aren't they all named George Foreman? Yeah, but I think it's different than when a kid dies and then you replace him with a kid with the same name, right? I guess, but it's not the first time I've heard that. Okay, what was the other time? <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> okay, moving on. All right. After graduating from public school three in West Village, Manhattan, the chin makes it as far as ninth grade big accomplishment and spends a short stint at textile high school like so many mobsters before him he ultimately decides that the academic world doesn't suit him and he drops out sometime around 1944 gigante finds his way to the boxing ring he pursues a professional career in the light heavyweight division his first fight is against vic chambers on july 18th in union city new jersey where chambers hands him a loss on February 19th, 1945, he faces Pete Petrello in Madison Square Garden and has knocked out Oof. in the tough, tough beat, tough beat for the champ. Gigante is not down for good, however, and he proves himself to be a man you can never count out. He eventually faces his first opponent again on June 29th, 1945, and this time he defeats Petrello. Seems the following year has his boxing life intersecting a life of crime. He becomes a protege of Vito Genovese, the leader of the crime family formerly headed by Charles Lucky Luciano. Legend has it that as Genovese endeared himself to the Gigante family when he loaned them money for a surgery needed by Yolanda. Vito Genovese's henchmen Tony Benderstrollo and Tommy Abley become important figures in Gigante's life. Abley, aka Tommy Ryan, is Genovese's bodyguard and top hitman, and he's a boxing fanatic. He takes the talented Gigante under his wing, managing both his fight career and his crime career. So uh, Tommy Ryan will eventually work his way all the way to the top. I got a little bit of insight on these boxing matches. I read uh, a book on the chin, and it really got into detail on uh, what the matches were like. They're totally mobbed out, and like people are paid to <laughs> people are paid to win, people are paid to lose. It's just it's so corrupt, right? And then there's uh, one story I can't possibly remember all the details, but like the wrong guy won or the 
ref called it before the fight was supposed to be over and stuff. It, and a mobster runs into the ring and punches the ref right in the face. And then all hell breaks loose and there's a riot. And, you know, I mean, it's just the most corrupt thing. You also got to remember right about now, Luciano's deported to Italy. He lives in exile and he will be there till 1962 when he dies. Vito Genovese, he's running from a murder charge of Ferdinand Bochia, which I think yes. we also covered in Genovese. Yes, we did. Yeah, he's finally allowed to return to New York in 1946, uh, supposedly to face the consequences, but then the witness against him turns up dead, and and he's he's good to go. It's what we call the tricks of the trade. That's right. Starting at age 17, one year after his first professional fight, the chin begins racking up arrests. Charges over the next seven years will include receiving stolen goods, illegal gambling and bookmaking, and possession of an unlicensed handgun. Most charges don't amount to much, if any, jail time. The longest sentence he serves at this time is 60 days for the illegal gambling conviction. He ultimately fights 25 matches and loses four, boxing 121 rounds and ending two matches with technical knockouts. He's a sparring partner of future Genovese acting boss Dominic Cirillo. Fighting at Madison Square Garden is a defining moment in any New York boxer's career. It's an indication that a fighter has arrived. His last match is described as a vicious bout against Jimmy Slade on May 17, 1947, which he loses after suffering a severe cut over his right eye, causing the ref to stop the fight and reward it to Slade. That might be uh, what you're talking about, Bill. I don't think it was a Jigani fight I was talking about, but uh, yeah, it's this kind of thing. It's this kind of thing. Club boxers in those days fought four- and six-round contests in neighborhood arenas, usually getting a percentage of the tickets they sell. His close association with the Genovese crew puts into question the legitimacy of his career, both wins <laughs> and losses. Huh. So when we talk about Jigani's record, it may or may not be accurate. He may have been paid to win every fight or paid to lose. or You, know, you, you really don't know, but I know it was corrupt from the ground up. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> He maintains a residence in Old Toppen, New Jersey, with his wife, Olympia Gripa, who he marries in 1950 and fathers five children, Andrew, Salvatore, Yolanda, Roseanne, and Rita. During this time, he also claims that he's employed as a tailor. Yeah, he, he claims that because they're calling him a gangster and saying he runs with a gangster crowd and stuff, and he's like, no, I'm an unemployed tailor. <laughs> so that's where that came from. He went to textile high school. So they probably picked up some skills there. I'm taking the under on that, but it's possible. <laughs> Gigante earns his street credentials as an enforcer in the 50s. He runs with a crew from Greenwich Village that was at one time overseen by Genovese himself. Gigante's crew is based out of the Triangle Social Club on Sullivan Street, but also meets with fellow crew members at the Dante Social Club on McDougal Street and the Panel Social Club on Thompson Street. It's said that Gigante also meets with gangsters and business associates at his mother's apartment. <laughs> Mom! I love it. He's involved in bookmaking and loan sharking and is immersed in labor racketeering involvement with New York City's construction haulage industries. Gigante's ascension continues to follow the reemergence of Genovese until the only thing that stands in their way is the leadership of Frank Costello. As one of his most trusted soldiers, Gigante is tasked with the killing of the Luciano crime boss. More of a bruiser than a proficient marksman, it's said that the Chin frequents an underworld shooting range in Greenwich Village to refine his trigger skills. 
Yeah, he's getting ready for this hit. Uh, they didn't just pick Gigani like, you go kill Frank Costello. They they really worked this out. And I don't even think it was Genovese necessarily that picked him. It was like a, a capo or an underboss that, that picked him. Uh, and uh, he, he gets into it. Uh, Gigani's so smart. He puts on weight. He starts eating. He gets himself up to 300 pounds, right? Because he knows that he's going to do this in a lobby and he wants to change his appearance enough that people don't, you know, immediately finger him out. He's practicing in the range and becoming a good marksman, becoming a good shot, and he's getting huge. This will ring some bells if you are a consistent listener to this pod. This will this will ring some bells here. On May 2nd, 1957, Costello, who's appealing a five-year prison sentence for federal income tax evasion, enjoys a dinner out with his wife and a few close friends. Apparently calling it an early evening, he catches a cab to his apartment at 115 Central Park West. Hopefully not his mom's apartment. No. no this is like a 30-story high-rise. Real nice place. Oh, uh, okay, okay. As his cab approaches his building, a black Cadillac is trailing close behind. A certain large ex-boxer jumps out of the caddy, follows Costello into the lobby, calls out, This is for you, Frank, and fires a single shot at his head. The scene is practically cinematic. Costello crumples to a leather couch, bleeding, as the chin hauls ass back to his getaway car and vanishes into the streets of Manhattan. So, uh, I say he hauls ass. He's 300 pounds. (laughs) That's what I'm thinking. (laughs) I I saw the testimony of the uh, guy that saw him. He goes, he waddled out of here. (laughs) (laughs) Chin can't get any respect. I can't can't laugh. I probably couldn't beat him in a foot race. (laughs) It sounded like the penguin tried to kill Frank this (laughs) time. Oswald Cobblepot. Gigante makes history with his famous but poorly executed attempt on Costello's life. Though his bullet finds his target's head, a miraculous bounce leaves it with only a graze. Gigante believes Costello to be dead but finds out later that he has botched the most important job of his life. And when we say it's a graze, it did bounce off his skull. There's a piece of flesh missing. So he had a fedora hat on. It went in the front of the hat, out the back of the hat. And meanwhile, wow. it so it's a head wound. And you know what mom always said, nothing bleeds like a head wound. That's right. But it, it gashed a line right across his head. So blood went, you know, his hat went, blood went. Jagani leaves believing he killed this sucker dead in the head. Although a police interrogation of Costello sheds little light on the night's excitement, Frank insists that he didn't get a good look at his assailant. A doorman named Norval Keith provides a good physical description of the gunman. And the idiot doorman, you know, he thinks he's providing a service. Damn it, Norval. Nobody wants this guy identified, but this Norval guy, he's like, no, he's a big fat guy. He's six foot. He waddled out of here. You know? Looked like a penguin. Yeah, he described him as a 300-pound gorilla. So Tigani is gone. He goes up to North State, and what does he do? He immediately goes on a crash diet and starts slimming down, right, and changing Uh, his appearance. That's the first thing he does. Typical. He's smart. Yeah. So by the time he gets back, he doesn't fit the physical description at all. Now, they they are looking for him because they got his uh, license plates, and I think he bought a car like two weeks before, so the car's in his name. So it it takes a little – this is back in the day. It takes a little while of shuffling papers around, but they do. They know it's him, and they they got his name, so they start looking for him. So eventually, when he's changed his appearance enough that he thinks it's plausible that it wasn't him, he comes back and turns himself in like, oh, I heard you're looking for me. 
The investigation is headed by Chief of Detectives James Leggett, along with 66 detectives on the case. Despite a complete lack of cooperation on Costello's part, Gigante is charged with attempted murder. The trial ends in his acquittal, however, when the crime boss, true to the rules of La Cosa Nostra, refuses to testify or identify the chin at trial. And of course, it's always been rumored that people heard Gigante whisper to Frank, like, hey, thanks, Frank. Like, thanks him for doing that. So uh, despite claiming to be a janitor and a tailor, Gigante strolls in with one of the most expensive lawyers around. And uh, also, things could have gotten much worse. When they first found Costello, he had a note in his pocket. And the note was like uh, talking about a casino and how the, the rackets are being divvied up, how the profits are going to be distributed. Yeah. And they're trying to ask him what it is and stuff, and he won't cooperate. But it doesn't take a genius, I guess. They, they decrypt it or whatever they do. And they figure out that it's the Tropicana Hotel. And it's huge because they're like, ah. they're like now there's a mob connection to the Tropicana right, Hotel. Right, right. And uh, somehow they do a little hustle and jive move and they say oh there's two guys it was them and they just arrest these two guys or fire them from the casino you know and they're kind of playing like oh, it's a shame uh, two bad apples had to spoil it for the entire Las Vegas you know right and, uh, so Gigante you gotta look at the position he's in he botched a hit on a boss that was unsanctioned Tough. and he damn near brought down the interests in Vegas so this is a screw up of just unbelievable proportions at this point, things could go badly for the Chin. He could be gunned down by his own family for botching the assassination attempt, or by the commission for moving on a boss. He could be executed for potentially jeopardizing the profit stream in Vegas. He could fall victim of personal vengeance at the hands of Costello. Inexplicably, none of these things happen. Costello, perhaps weary from a life of crime and endless legal persecutions, decides to step down. He concedes his empire to the ambitious hands of Genovese. Ultimately, Gigante has accomplished his boss's goals without killing Costello. Despite the bizarre turn of events that seem to work in Gigante's favor, the following year will be anything but lucky for his crew and the new boss of what is now the Genovese crime family. Things start off on track as Genovese presides over the expansion of the heroin trade. Although publicly decreed by La Cosa Nostra as forbidden, the drug trade is clearly the golden goose of the future. Unfortunately, on November 11, 1957, the Appalachian fiasco, another bell ringing for you regular listeners, exactly, puts the mob on primetime TV, baby. It also puts a microscope on Genovese and by default, Gigante. The Federal Bureau of Narcotics, or FBN, has the Chin and Genovese's global drug distribution operation in their sights. In 1958, the FBN convicts Genovese and Gigante for narcotics trafficking. Genovese will never be released from prison. So to recap, Genovese and by default Gigante were most likely set up for heroin trafficking by Luciano, Lansky, Costello, and Gambino using a Puerto Rican drug dealer. We covered that. So they all had a hand in the conspiracy to kind of clip the wings of Genovese. By all accounts, Gigante does his time like a stand-up guy with his mouth shut. This by no means indicates that he likes prison, and he doesn't forget the experience or the events that led up to his incarceration. While he does his time, Gigante is described as a model prisoner. He's polite, respectful, and cooperative, willing to do any job assigned him by the institution. His good behavior is rewarded by reducing his sentence from seven years to five. 
he's released on parole. In 1964, he returns to the streets a lot wiser and arguably a bit more paranoid. He's 35 years old. Genovese, plagued by legal issues, including the traitorous testimony of rats, including his own wife, endeavors to run his family from the joint. Shortly after his release, Gigante is promoted from the status of soldier to the capo of the Greenwich Village crew. So Gigante's still very tight with Genovese, who is a bitter, paranoid psycho at this point, right? And I, I suspect this kind of rubs off on Gigante as things move forward. So if you remember, you got acting boss Tony Bender-Strollo. Genovese seems to suspect he might be involved in the setup. I don't think he was, but whether he was or not, he seems to read the situation and defects over to the Gambino family, where things are going to be a little bit safer. However, Gambino was absolutely involved in the setup, so it doesn't do much for his case. And he's like, oh yeah, he's going over the Gambinos. So one day, Strollo just disappears from his apartment. And I strongly suspect that Chin had a hand in uh, mm. that retribution for his boss. You think? <laughs> Purely you. suspicion on my part. How dare you accuse? He was a stand-up guy in prison. He was. He was. Which is <laughs> which is normal for mob guys. They don't cause a lot of trouble. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They want to get out. Yeah. It's now up to the Chin to carve out a new life for himself and the family. And more importantly, how to avoid prosecution in the future. It's at this time that he devises a long-term plan to deflect federal suspicion while maneuvering toward a leadership position in the Genovese outfit. Gigante begins to exhibit strange behaviors in public. He projects a disheveled appearance, sporting messy hair and donning dirty, tattered bathrobes. <laughs> Paul Castellano would approve. Yes, that's what I was just thinking. <laughs> he adapts a persona of being disoriented and confused. He periodically checks himself into clinics for mental health reasons, and his immediate family begins to reinvent his past to reflect a history of mental illness. It's a brilliant idea that will serve him well as time goes on. Unbelievable strategy. It is brilliant, yeah. though. It is. Yeah, they've uh, touched on this in a lot of shows like Sopranos, you know, when Junior, it's like, is he crazy? Is he faking? Right. And yeah, a lot of people have picked this up in their media stuff. As the 60s come to a close, the Chin becomes aware of FBI investigations involving his family's racketeering endeavors. In 1969, he's arrested on the charge of attempting to bribe the entire five-member Old Tappan police. It's alleged that he was trying to get information on any new developments regarding organized crime investigations, particularly the Genovese family, in his area. It's at this time that he puts his mental illness routine into full swing. For the first time, he checks himself into a psychiatric facility full-time. The ruse pays off, and his lawyers get the charge dropped convincing the court that the Chin is mentally unfit to stand trial. Yeah, so he has his mother and brothers fill out his paperwork, basically just reinventing his whole childhood. They're already on the record saying that he was a happy, well-adjusted child and other things, right? Like when he went to prison, his mother fills out his full medical history. She indicates that beyond a slight speech impediment and a minor heart murmur, he was always a happy, healthy child. So now she's doing a 180. She's going... He's, he's always had schizophrenic tendencies. He's got a low IQ, you know, and at one point they ask her if he's the crime boss. And she said, uh, he's the boss of the toilet. <laughs> you know, so they're just... <laughs> yeah. They're in, uh, even his priest brother is on TV saying, you know, this guy is a, is a mentally deficient. Leave him alone. He's not in the mob. I mean, and he's got his collar on and he's on the news. He's, he's selling it. Wow. Well, they, I was reading that he had one of his brothers, I think, tested 
said that he had tested and it was like between 69 and 75, which is incredibly low. But what kind of idiot believes that shit when he's running one of the largest crime organizations in the world? Well, that's the thing. Everybody doesn't know that. It's, it's, it's common knowledge to his close people. He doesn't let a lot of people around him. And everybody sees him in the street talking to himself, uh, muttering around, shaking his head. His hair's a mess. He's got a half a beard. And he only comes out at night. So, I mean, he's selling it. He's selling it. It's not some story he made up. He's, he's living it. So he's got lots of Oscars on his mantle. Yeah. In February of the same year, his mentor and boss dies in prison. Genevieve's family adopts a culture of extreme secrecy, even to the point that the leader of the family is a closely guarded mystery. This extreme withdrawal frustrates the FBI, who has to rely on the shaky testimony of informants not closely tied to the upper echelon of the family. So this was at a time when informing or cooperating with the feds was almost certainly punishable by death. You know, obviously times have changed. The best law enforcement can do is try to bust lower individual criminals. So this is obviously all before the RICO statute, right? What's RICO? We're not going to get into RICO. <laughs> Go back and listen. So, I'm kidding. We are not getting back into RICO. But the RICO Act is established in 1970. And once it's fully understood, everything's going to change. But there's a, a guy went to arrest Jagadi once and his mom like, well, come in and get him. And he's in the shower wearing galoshes and an umbrella singing in the rain or something, you know. So the guy's like, he's convinced. He's like, oh, this guy's nuts. Even uh, psychiatrists, I think five psychiatrists said he's not faking. He's crazy. Dang. Now, maybe they were paid off. Who knows? Yeah. It's it's very controversial whether he is or not. But all the mob guys that walk with him and are helping him down the street, they know. Right. In the later part of the 70s, the FBI has become formally educated on the purpose and execution of the RICO Act and has created five separate divisions to surveil each major crime family in New York. The Genovese Division has been gathering information about Gigante. By 1979, the word on the street is that he is a man of great respect in the family, and this is enough to grab the attention and curiosity of law enforcement. During this time, Gigante steps up his mentally deficient act even admitting himself for psychiatric evaluation at least five more times. Dedication. He's committed to the part. What is that method acting? He is Stanislavski all the way. <laughs> Full method. Despite his family's assurances that Gigante is a virtual recluse and rarely leaves his neighborhood block, detectives grow more and more certain that he's a central figure in the Genovese power structure. Behind the scenes, the Genovese family is playing a sort of shell game. When Genovese was alive and running things from prison, he organized a small group of acting bosses. The group consisted of Capo Michelle Miranda, underboss Gerardo Jerry Catena, and acting boss Thomas Tommy Ryan Abley. These mobsters were well known to federal authorities, but the testimony of mob rat Joseph Valachi revealed that Philip Benny Squint Lombardo was also part of the leadership squad. In 1972, Abley is gunned down. It is presumed that the hit on Abley is ordered by Carlo Gambino who hopes Alphonse Frank Funzi Thierry would take the top spot. Apparently, he feels that a Thierry regime would better suit his interests. The bully may have been killed for refusing to pay a $4 million loan debt to Gambino. So oh. that's out there, too. Okay. It may not have been just, just for a power move. It may be like he owes money. I'd rather have somebody out there that it's is more responsible. Me. Yeah, exactly. It happens, all right? Unbeknownst to even Gambino, Philip Lombardo has been the boss of the family since 1969, and Abley and Thierry are merely decoys to protect the chain of leadership. 
In 81, Thierry passes away of natural causes. So Thierry ends up being charged as the head of the crime family. They get him with racketeering, extortion, illegal gambling, and all that. Uh, he's the first guy to get nabbed by the RICO Act, right? Now, he's in a wheelchair with an oxygen tank at the sentencing. Thierry's lawyers argue for leniency, saying that he was a dying old man. <laughs> Prosecutors told the judge it was an act, and the judge sent Thierry to prison for 10 years. And as you said, he dies in 1981. Could have taken acting lessons from the chin. Yeah. (laughs) That same year, Philip Lombardo steps down as boss due to poor health. He ensures that Gigante succeeds him as boss of the Genovese family. True to form, they also bring up Anthony Fat Tony Salerno to serve as a front boss. This disguises the transition for the chin from a capo to one of the most powerful bosses to ever serve in the underworld. So the FBI takes the bait, and in 1986, Fat Tony is sentenced to 100 years during the uh, Mafia Commission trials. So Lombardo spends his retirement in Inglewood, New Jersey, but he spends his remaining winters in Hollywood, Florida, Cayuchi Territory, and uh, he died on April 29, 1987, at the age of 78. But the, the interesting thing about Fat Tony, he pretended to be the boss, and he went to jail. And did, like knowing he'd never get out, he wow. went to jail protecting his boss, right? Took one for the team. Yeah. The interesting thing is, if you uh, are a fan of Sammy the Bull stuff, one of his major reasons he says he sold out was because John Gotti wanted him to take the fall. And he's like, wow. that's a wrap move, right? Right. So you see the difference between Sammy the Bull, like where he's like, fuck you, I'm not doing that. To Tony Salerno, that's just like it's his duty and he's going to jail. And he never once said, I'm not the boss. I'm not the boss. <laughs> you know, he went down. So uh, it's interesting. It's an interesting uh, difference in character, if you want to put it that way. In the early 80s, things are far from safe for the chin. Federal agents can't help but notice that things in the underworld are growing ever more violent. They strongly suspect that Gigante is at the heart of it. The trouble starts with the unsanctioned hit on Angelo Bruno, the Philadelphia family boss. Bruno is known as a docile Don who keeps a low profile and prefers non-lethal resolutions to gangland executions. Bruno got into some trouble when he, like Paul Castellano, refused to have his organization involved in narcotics trafficking. Another policy he had in common with Big Paul is that he allowed other factions to deal drugs in his area, turning a blind eye as long as money was being kicked up to him. Eventually, frustrations turn to violence, and on March 21st, 1980, 69-year-old Bruno is found dead in his car. He's a victim of a shotgun blast to the back of his head. The car is parked in front of his home in South Philly, and his driver, John Stanfa, is said to be wounded. Wounded is suspicious. (laughs) Yes. Just wing me. Just wing me. So let me get this straight. He shot the boss in the head with a shotgun... But you got winged. Like, what did he miss? Yeah. I wasn't a part of it or anything. Because, <laughs> you know, those shotguns, they go all over the place when they're point blank. I just, I don't know, man. I, I think that guy might have been a little bit part of it. And he, he did the old classic, make it look good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he was part of it as well. Hell yes, he was. Like at the end of Scream, just get me, get me on the side here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although Bruno's murder is well outside of the New York Territory, it's important to remember that all crime families are subject to the will of the commission. All of them. Even in an internal beef, no one can make a move on a boss without first seeking approval. 
Gigante is a staunch traditionalist in the ways of La Cosa Nostra, and he's not about to sit idly by as its rules are violated. It's rumored that he launches his own internal investigation into the murder of Bruno, an investigation that ultimately leads to Antonio Bananas Caponegro. Caponegro is Bruno's trusted consigliere, and it isn't long after that that his body is found in the trunk of a car. The body has been stripped of its clothing and beaten severely. It has been shot 15 times and stabbed in the back. It's peppered in $20 bills, a message to his fellow mobsters that he's been killed for his greed. But it's definitely overkill, so definitely trying to send a point. Yeah, and of course, the thing that always sticks out to me is uh, Gigani is a staunch guy that's enforcing the rules, right? He tried to yeah. kill Frank Costello. I know. <laughs> so, Look, he's all it. about the rules. Do all as I say, them. not as I do. Yeah, that's that's the part that always stuck in my car a little <laughs> bit. You know, I'm like, that's how, that, that made you. You know, it's like, maybe that's it. It's like, I'm going to make it illegal to do the thing that got me to the top. Well, then nobody can threaten you. Caponegro had apparently been assisted by one Fred Salerno, who subsequently found dead in a vacant parking lot the same day as Caponegro. Salerno, too, has suffered multiple gunshot wounds. Bruno's position is quickly assumed by his underboss, Phil Testa. He appoints a man named Nicodemo Scarfo as his consigliere. On March 15th, Testa is returning to his twin home in South Philadelphia. As he's inserting the key into the lock of his front door, a nail bomb planted beneath his front porch is detonated. Testa is literally shredded to pieces. It's suspected that his murder is the doing of underboss Peter Casella, his chauffeur Rocco Marinucci, and capo Frank Narducci Sr. It's another unsanctioned hit on a boss, and repercussions are sure to follow. The consequences come to Rocco Marinucci, who's found with bullet wounds to the chest, neck, and head. His mouth is stuffed with firecrackers, a message leaving no doubt as to the reason he is killed. I got to tell you, uh, you know, Joshua, the intern, has been on hiatus, but uh, I got a picture of this guy dead with the stuff shoved in his mouth, and it looks like his throat's cut. I mean, but wow. it wasn't in the autopsy or anything. But So I show this to Joshua, the intern, right? He looks at it, hands it back, so he goes, well, there's worse place they could have shoved those firecrackers. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You've gone cold. <laughs> well, look at his uh, mentor. Yeah, there's the guy right there. Is it really him? That's him. That's him. For real. I thought it was a puppet. I thought it was the Joker. Yeah, he looks like the Joker, but that's his real dead body. Well, not a good look. No. (laughs) Next to Ed on the chopping block is Genevieve's associate and hitman Gerard Papa Bear Papa. Papa carried out the murder of Colombo crime family capo Thomas Shorty Spiro. In July of 1980, his assassins are awaiting him at the Villa 66 restaurant in Brooklyn. They're hiding in the kitchen. Papa Bear has a reputation for being fast on his feet and heavily armed, but these traits won't save him this time as his killers slip in quietly behind him. The last thing Papa hears in his life is the sound of a sawed-off shotgun blowing his head. So Papa was a longtime friend of Sammy the Bull Gravano, and he tells a great story of a botched car robbery that almost ends him and Joe Vitale. It's Gerard Papa who drives around with their bloody asses and ultimately saves them. But even though this is a Colombo hit executed by Colombos, it's widely believed that the murder contract is handed down by Gigani. And he seems to be a universal mob enforcer at this point, and it lends credence to his reputation as being the boss of bosses. 
but for what it's worth, he's acquitted of this murder in 1997. Federal law enforcement is scrambling to find the source of the increased violence. On the street, things seem to be escalating out of control. Through their various mob informants, they're learning that Gigante is behind most mob executions. He has become the patriarch for code enforcement of La Cosa Nostra. Oh, interesting how that works. Unfortunately, the testimony of rats is not going to go far in a court of law. Uh, I can just hear Bill saying this right here. The sworn testimony of a known criminal trying to save his own ass isn't likely to be regarded as proof beyond a reasonable doubt. The feds know that if they're going to bring him down, they're going to need solid evidence. They shift their focus on the activities of Gigante and the Genovese family. What they initially learn is that the Genovese have infiltrated several New York commercial industries. Among them are the garment trade, trucking and logistics, garbage collection, airport cargo handling, and the seafood industry. They even got the shrimp. Even the shrimp. They got it all. Yep, the tailor industry. Who was that uh, quack quack? Yes. <laughs> He's like, the sissy dressmakers, the trash pickers, and the fish men. <laughs> Remember, he was on the wiretap. No matter what business you're in, he could denigrate you. Yeah. <laughs> like you seem like you're a sissy. He, he would he yeah. would screw you. He'd bury you. For his part, Gigante is well aware of the heat being brought to his organization. He deflects this in ways that are as innovative as they are frustrating to the law enforcement officials tasked with his apprehension. He continues his charade of a mentally deficient wretch that is frequently seen walking only with the assistance of family and friends. Even more ingenious is his method for evading damaging evidence on the seemingly omnipresent wiretaps. No one in his organization can even speak his name. If they want to refer to him, they will touch their chin or draw a C in the air with their finger. That was a brilliant move. Yeah, really brilliant. You know, if I was like his brother and I have to walk him down the street, at some point I'm like, come on, come on, man. Everyone does it. Even Michael Frances tells a story where he would walk with him and stuff. And he's got this half smile on his face. He goes, yeah, I mean, you walk with him in the rope thing. It's, it's 10 feet. It's 10 feet. You can't you can't let up for a sec. So the whole mentally challenged crippled guy thing's a good plan, but it's hard to keep up. You know, guys are watching him 24-7 pretty much. I already said this, but uh, once they came to his mother's apartment to arrest him, they find him in the shower with galoshes and umbrellas. Whatever happened to galoshes? <laughs> Our shoes just aren't worth saving anymore. They must have been, you know, the shoes used to be nice. They're out of style. Yeah, now you wear them out in two months, you throw the damn things away. Because they're not made in Italy anymore. That's right. Gigani figures he's better off moving around at night because he figures most cops are going to be lazy and they're not going to want to surveil him in the middle of the night. And for the most part, he's right. But a couple of times, uh, the surveillance is relentless, and it's only a matter of time before they see him, like, sporting a shark skin suit under his robe or darting across traffic when he's supposed to be incapacitated. So little by little, the cops are getting on to him, and they're not buying it. The enforcement group watching Jigani is putting together that the man is living two separate and distinct lives. By day, he's a mentally troubled invalid who lives with his mother. By night, he's a shrewd and methodical mob boss. After considerably more observation, they learned that the criminal multitasker also has a third life as Batman. (laughs) (laughs) He's Batman and the Penguin. (laughs) And the Joker's dead. Yeah, he took out the competition. Gigante has somehow formed a second family with longtime girlfriend Olympia Esposita. 
do you mean somehow? Should you try walking around the streets in a decrepit old bathrobe and then pick up some ass? That's a, that's a, <laughs> don't take this from him. <laughs> but this is where he's brilliant. His mistress has the same damn name, Olympia. I, I tell Zach stories about this guy named Big Dan all the time. I don't know if anything's ever made it into an actual show, but I knew this guy that was just a big bruiser of a guy. He could knock you out in one punch, like crack your head open and stuff. But uh, every time he introduced me to his girlfriend, her name was Kelly, and it'd be different girls. You know, <laughs> and it just, I, I'm like, I want to like slip her a note, go, look, is he making you be Kelly? <laughs> But what's great about this, too, though, I mean, don't they have, like, three or four boys together and, like, the kids end up being involved in the family? Yeah, well, he's got kids in the first one and he's got three kids in the second one. So he's doing the Galani thing. He's got two families. But after that first arrest with the police thing when he was trying to bribe the police and later on said he was trying to give him, like, Christmas gifts or something, I think him and his wife were basically on the outs after that. For whatever reason, that was a stressor in their marriage and stuff. So then then this new thing happened. Yeah, well, yeah. it happens in all marriages. He probably mixed up the Christmas presents one year and she didn't forgive him. Something. I, she was like shocked to find out there was illegal activity going on in her house. <laughs> That's why it moved to his mom's. Yeah. Yeah. Who was equally shocked because she thought he was <laughs> king of the toilet. <laughs> At this point, the FBI is becoming aware of virtually all of the Chin's movements. They discover that he keeps an apartment above a pet store that seems to do no business. Gigante often meets people at this bogus pet store, as well as the neighborhood social club. Predictably, the company he keeps leans toward the Cosa Nostra persuasion. So the pet store is kind of funny because uh, I think they basically just had a cat litter box in the front window, and that was about it. <laughs> <laughs> they had they had no customers, none. They sold nothing. There was no animals in there. It was just like they they painted pet store on the window, and that was about the end of it. And it kind of reminded me over here in Indy uh, on the east side, they had a car wash that was really a like a front for just gambling, like poker games. <laughs> And uh, they found out, like, over the course of a year, the thing used, like, half a gallon of water. (laughs) (laughs) So they busted it, you know? That's their first clue. But I'm like, you know what? If you set up a car wash and you've got all the stuff and you got the sign up, why not just hire a couple kids and wash some damn cars while you're at it? Make some money. Yeah. And then then you actually use some water, you know? But uh, so, yeah, they busted it up and stuff. But it kind of reminded me of that with the pet store. The pet store was a really lame attempt at uh, a front. Yes. Law enforcement's next move is to rent a townhouse within eyeshot of Olympia Esposito's apartment. From a close-by vantage point, detectives are able to witness Gigante inside her apartment. He exhibits none of the erratic behavior he displays on the street. It's interesting that he lets his guard down there. His daughter Rita said that around the original place, the original family where she grew up, the windows were all blacked out and they're barred and the curtains were always drawn. But apparently he feels safe at the girlfriend's house and that's how he gets nailed. Like even coming out of the shower, he's wearing a nice robe, not that crappy one that he sports outside. It's always the girlfriend. Yeah. And what the feds did is they got an apartment close to the girlfriend's thing. So I think the guy, all he had to do was like sneak out of back and go down a little bit in the backyard or something. And he's got a shot at the second Olympia's window and the curtains aren't drawn and they're up and like he's just acting like a normal guy. Like he can see him. Inside the Genovese family, the chin is a micromanager. 
He's constantly interrogating his crew members as to the activities they're engaged in. He's constantly chiseling them for money, making sure they are bumping up every cent owed to him. Eventually, the frustrations get to his underlings, and these frustrations find their way to the wiretaps. So somebody finally mentions the chin. He was playing on the frustrations, but the guy's wearing a wire. And uh, he goes, well, Vincent, he slips it in, and somebody immediately goes, don't say his name. And so they they heard that, and they're like, wait a minute. You know, they're like, that that was weird. You know, and that's what kind of like just confirmed it even more. And then, and then made him understand why they weren't hearing his name on wiretaps. And that guy was never heard from again. Well, no, he's he, he's fine. He's all right. He's all right. Yeah, he's all right. Strike one. Gigante continues to check himself in for psychiatric treatments at least once a year. Always sure to leave a paper trail should it be needed in court. His mobster associates sarcastically refer to these visits as tune-ups. Gotta get a tune-up. You know, I wonder if you ever watched uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest to to get to really get into it, really get into the role. Wouldn't surprise me. His daughter said he must have had some kind of coaching. Like he's he had some point of reference that he was getting instruction on how he should behave. <sighs> Access to Gigante is very limited. Perhaps scarred by the Appalachian debacle, he is averse to attending large meetings that other families hold far more frequently. Most discussions that involve legal activities are handled by a small group of trusted men. Messages are passed discreetly to them and given to Gigante during public walks in the street. So guys would walk Gigante around like they're his nurses almost, right? And he figured if he stayed on the move, even the bugs planted around the neighborhood aren't going to pick up anything coherent. You know, just scraps of conversation here or there. Sure. The detectives put taps on all his residential phone lines, even Esposito's, but to no avail. Chin will never talk business on a phone. and the rare occasions that he does... He uses random payphones whose use cannot be predicted. The bosses of the other families are far less paranoid, and they pay the price. Using the RICO statute, the commission is targeted and virtually all the top bosses are brought under indictments. All that is, except the Chin, who again checks himself into a mental institution and avoids arrest. He's got a plan and he's sticking to it. But that's the thing. I mean, 69 to 75 IQ, bullshit. Yeah, no. No way. This guy, this guy's brighter than some of his predecessors. Oh, yeah, the 69 is bullshit. I saw somewhere else they said his IQ was over 100. This guy should have gone to Juilliard. He should have gone into ballet. <laughs> Meanwhile, on the Gambino side of town... Paul Castellano cleverly avoids his conviction by getting himself gunned down in front of Spark Steakhouse, a well-planned hit directed by Sammy Gravano and ordered by Capo John Gotti. The hit is brought to the commission for approval, but Gigante refuses to go along. Paul Castellano is a friend and a business partner to the chin, and he will not be betrayed. Moving forward with the public assassination despite Gigante's objections is inexcusable in the mind of the chin. As always... Retribution is coming. So I saw several accounts that imply the Chin actually put Gotti on notice, saying something like uh, his murders will not go unpunished, just to let him know that something was coming. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, he puts a plot in motion, but it's about two years in the making. In a meeting with Lucchese hitmen, a plan is hatched to kill the new boss of the Gambino family. The meeting is bugged, however, and the feds are legally obligated to inform Gotti of the plot. Gotti changes his plan for that day, and the assassination never happens. Undeterred, 
Gigante allegedly reaches out to Lucchese capo Vic Amuso. Amuso is tasked with putting together a crew, which will include Anthony Gaspipe Casso and working out the details of the Gotti hit. He uses his underworld connections to acquire the necessary explosives to be planted in Gotti's car. On April 13, 1986, Gambino underboss Frank DeChico is eviscerated by the bomb intended for Gotti in a case of mistaken identity. So Gravano's on record depicting the day he was killed, and apparently he's driving Gotti around and goes back to the car to get a business card from the glove box, and the bull actually offers to go get it. He's like, you want me to go get it? And he's like, no, I'll do it. And uh, they mistake him as the boss because uh, he went to the other side of the car, and it, and it blows up. And Gravano describes trying to like save his friend, and he starts to pull on his arm and leg, and the arm and leg's coming off, uh-huh. and then he... Then he said he tried to scoop him up and his hands just like went inside the guy like he was liquefied. And Gravano's like, man, I've seen some shit. Never seen anything like that. Like he just wasn't wasn't ready for that. Can't unsee that. Nope. You can't unfeel it either. Consequently, Gotti is indicted on charges of racketeering, five murders, conspiracy to murder, loan sharking, illegal gambling, obstruction of justice, bribery and tax evasion. It most likely saves his life. The Genovese family isn't just a one-trick murder pony, however, and law enforcement is learning about a construction racket that is pouring millions into the Gigani coffers. The city of New York is in an energy crisis, and there's a $190 million project underway to replace the windows of public housing with new energy-efficient models. Bids on these projects, of course, are ready to go to the interests of the Genovese and Lucchese families. Two families who used to work independently have since learned to cooperate and maximize their profits. The Lucchese have seized control of the Iron Workers Local 580, and the Genovese has a firm grip on several of the major contractors. So the prices were jacked up about $2 per window. The money split between the Lucchese and the uh, Genovese family, the collector of said money, and the corrupt union officials that looked the other way. A carpenter's union delegate got roughed up. I think he got broken legs. And another guy from the 580 was shot and killed coming out of his Long Island home. So it doesn't take much to get these folks in line. Just when it seems everything is coming up roses, up sprouts a weed. The weed is Peter Savino, who is the point man in the window scam. Savino has his ass in a sling, and he's been arrested for a murder. And the case against him is looking like a slam dunk. The feds leverage this charge and convince him to turn rat. Savino wears a wire for 18 months. He records hours and hours of conversations in both the Lucchese and Genovese families regarding the Windows racket. As often happens, the amount of money that Savino is bringing in blinds his cohorts to the deception he is perpetrating against him. Gigani is well pleased with the window money and holds Savino in high esteem. Yeah, and meanwhile, Savino is tracking the money, he's managing the payoffs, he's fixing the bids, he's all over this thing, and he's feeding it all straight to the feds. Genovese members of the family are not as trusting as Gigani. When a building owned by Savino is searched by the cops, several dead bodies are discovered in the basement. Yikes. The mobsters around Savino are waiting for the nonstop harassment a development like this tends to bring, but it never really comes. Law enforcement seems to have little interest in the ghoulish landlord, and it makes his cohorts extremely suspicious. So at this time, the telltale signs are present. 
He's got bodies in the basement and the cops don't seem to care, right? So everybody's looking at each other. But he's bringing in hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. And at the end of the day, no one's completely sure, right? So Jagani's still hesitant, you know, and it's going to cost him. That's crazy. You can just have bodies rotting in your basement and nobody gives a shit. Yeah. And and it's like in the Genovese family, they know, but they don't know. Right. And if it was anybody else, they'd have taken care of it by now. But he's the head of this window scheme and it's just too big of money. They don't want to pass it up. Okay. You know, it's interesting about the Gotti thing, too. You know, they saved Gotti's life because uh, if the feds hear that there's going to be a murder, they got to tell the guy, right? I know. That's so crazy. Well, I mean, they should have to do that. But, I mean, it's just crazy when you see all the stuff, how Gotti lived as long as he did. Yeah, well, here's the thing I'm getting at. When Franchese Sonny said you could put a head out on Ori Spado, the feds didn't say shit to him. They never told him. He found out in tapes, you know, during his trial. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's that's who you're dealing with. So they didn't feel loyal to say anything then. They broke the law to not warn him that he was going to be killed. For the feds, Savino's efforts up to this point are falling short. They need him to record his partners discussing the chin and thereby give proof that he is the boss of the family. It's an exercise in futility, however, as he can never get any of his men to break the rule of never saying his name aloud. So finally, there's a recording of Savino saying something like, uh, Vincent said to bid that work, and he's abruptly cut off when a guy scolds him, like, don't say that name. Right, right. uh, And Savino's like, fine, I won't say it, and he continues with what he's saying. But it's not concrete proof, but it's weird enough to get the point through to the feds that they they get that Jagani's the guy. Eventually, Gigante and his men have to accept what they've probably known all along. Peter Savino is a rat. Furious, the chin puts a contract on Savino's life, but it's too late. The feds have taken the rat far from the reach of the five families, leaving behind only thousands of hours of recorded conversations. Yeah, and Savino tells him everything, all the players, how they interacted, and uh, this is where Sammy the Bull goes right. It's about the same time. In May of 1990, Vincent the Chin Gigante is indicted as the boss of the Genovese family. His charges include six counts of murder, several conspiracy to commit murders, and at least 24 counts of racketeering. Trial of Gigante goes on for years. A second indictment is levied against him in June of 93. For years, the question of the Chin's mental stability is the key issue. His lawyers argue convincingly that he is not competent that he is unable to understand the charges filed against him. He has a history of mental illness. He's in and out. All of a sudden can't read either. Yeah, it, it seems uh, obvious in hindsight, but there's this whole back and forth always going like, uh, even, like I said, even the cops aren't 100% sure sometimes. They're like, God, am I getting this wrong? Because he's, he's playing it to the hilt. The actual trial takes place in 1997. Gigante is found guilty of plotting to kill three people, one of them being John Gotti and another Savino. He's found guilty of extortion and union payoff conspiracies. He is not convicted of the six murders. All that is left for his attorneys to do is fall back on the mental incompetency defense. They contend that the boss is unable to even comprehend the sentencing hearing. He is held in prison while several doctors evaluate him. They do some sort of PET scan to measure his brain chemistry. A 1993 scan they examined does apparently show abnormalities but a few of the doctors figure it's from the medications like antipsychotic, sedatives, etc. that he's been taking. 
Yeah, the psychiatric evaluations of Jigani are pretty interesting. They're repeatedly asking him questions like, where do you live? What are your children's names, etc.?" And of course, he's playing the confused old man. He's in his late 60s, right? And he's saying things like, I should know that. And uh, at some point, they ask him who the president was. He claims he doesn't know. And then a few questions later, he blurts out, George Bush. And then uh, George Bush wasn't the president. <laughs> But the giveaway is that he could remember a question after being asked several other questions. Uh, and that's inconsistent with dementia. He, it should have been water under the bridge. So he kind of flubbed up there. And they also asked if he was proud of his kids. And he said that he was and that they had legitimate jobs. And this was a mistake because pride should have been an abstract concept at that point to his muddled brain. Right. And he wouldn't have expanded on the legitimacy issue as if, you know, and, and legitimate wasn't even brought up. So in the end, his symptoms were judged to be inconsistent and it kind of doesn't mean you can't play it all the way. Right. Right. So the, and the guards are observing him during his incarceration and for whatever reason in jail, he's able to groom himself. He's eating. He seems perfectly aware of what's going on. He's polite and cordial, you know? So it's like almost like the act wasn't going when he was in jail and being observed by guards. He wasn't keeping it up. It's hard to do full time. It is. After five months and excessive testing, a judge finally rules, quote, In short, the defendant's cognitive and emotional capacity and communication skills are equivalent to other 69-year-old inmates with limited education. No hallucinations interfere with his ability to participate in sentencing. He understands the fundamentals of substantive criminal law and procedure. He is deliberately feigning mental illness to avoid punishment, which he fears. The defendant is competent to be sentenced and to serve an appropriate time in prison. End quote. In 97, he was originally sentenced to 12 years in prison and fined $1.25 million. In 2003, he pleads guilty to obstruction of justice and gets another three years slapped on. It's reported that he ultimately admits that his displays of mental incompetency were an act. His son is indicted with him, among others in a family affair on charges of racketeering and extortion. On July 25, 2003, Gigante's son Andrew was sentenced to two years in prison and fined two and a half million for racketeering and extortion. Wow. Yeah, so Andrew wasn't an associate or a made guy. He had no real status in the mob family. He was just being used by Gigante to deliver message and he kind of seems like collateral damage you know, going down for racketeering. Now they right. say it's unheard of for a mob boss to plead guilty. The part of the deal was that they wouldn't hold the family liable for their role in a, like an obstruction of justice because they all kind of jumped in and said he was mentally ill. So that's why he pleaded guilty and said he made it all up is so they wouldn't start going after his family and stuff, which is what the dirty bastards would do, of course. Right. But if they said, hey, we won't go after your family, he would have pleaded guilty to being an alien from Mars, you know? He's just trying to, like, reduce the damage done to him and his family at this point. So is this why none of his brothers got in trouble, too? For this. Right. It, it didn't get him out of anything else. It just got him out of, like, his mother said he's crazy, right? And his priest brother said he's crazy. It got him off the hook because they were technically in violation of an obstruction of justice charge. Like, they knowingly made false testimony to the feds. Gotcha. On December 19th, 2005, the Chin is pronounced dead at 
at the Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri. He's 77 years old. He's buried four days later. It's minimal ceremony or fanfare. He was scheduled for release in 2010. His surviving relatives are said to be properly cared for, earning close to $2 million a year as employees of various companies on the New Jersey waterfront. Not suspicious at all. This concludes the legend of Vincent the Chin Gigante. So he ended up dying. Uh, he was attacked with a bunch of guys with pointed sticks, and they oh. stabbed him. To, no, I'm just kidding. It was heart disease. He died. <laughs> I was going to say, I thought he was, like, sick because they he went to the hospital, and they sent him back, and then he ended up back in the hospital. Like Yeah, he had sick. heart disease, and uh, he would have been out in another five years. Like in 2010, he was supposed to get out. So, I mean, he would have been back on the street and back in charge. You know, when you're in jail, you're still the boss. Right. Yeah. And uh, what was My kids need to remember that. (laughs) Uh, You made me forget what I was going to (laughs) say. Sorry. He was going to get out in 2010. Oh, here's the weird thing about Savino. He dies of cancer four months after he testifies. (sighs) Did he not know? He had to know, right? So why would he rat? Why did he rat? It's it's amazing. Unless he's just in denial about his death. But if if they could have postponed that trial another four months, he'd have died and Gigani probably would have walked. Right. Maybe he didn't know. It's astonishing. Yeah, when I saw that he died like that soon after, I'm like, what, are you kidding me? But yeah, they pushed that through just in time or he'd, have, he'd still be walking the streets. Anyway, that's the legend. There was a cool story. Uh, Kayuchi had his buddy Natty on. And I don't want to steal their story. You should go check out Kaiuchi if you haven't. You're missing out huge. He's get he's blowing up really big. But uh, his buddy had basically decked this guy and kicked his ass, and it turned out to be the nephew of the Chin. Oh. And Jerry Chili, Jerry Chili has to go get that that friend of Kaiuchi's natty and bring him all the way to New York, and they got to answer for what they did. And uh, so you got to go hear that story. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spill it out. It's Natty's story, but. It's, it's, it's great. You got to you gotta check it out. It's really good. All right. Uh, another cool thing that happened, uh, Sammy the Bull responded to one of Kaiuchi's stories. Oh, like, yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. It, it was it was cool. So it, so obviously, Sammy the Bull is now subscribing to Kaiuchi's stuff, you know. Like, how far has <laughs> this guy come in such a short time? Very far. Seems like yesterday he had 100 followers. Now they're just packing on by the thousands. That's great. I don't want to make it all about me and say I called it, but I did. Well, you're of a high intellect. That's exactly what I think. We all know that. You tell us all the time. But anyway, hey, don't forget to uh, buy Ori Spado's book, The Accidental Gangster. It's out. Don't forget uh, Mafia Made by Anthony Cayucci. Both of them are going to be great. And uh, we'll see you next time. Have a good week. Thank you for listening to Partners in Crime. This week's episode is an adaptation of several different historical accounts. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. All sources and attribute links can be found in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Partners in Crime Podcast. Links are in the show notes. If you didn't like the show, keep your mouth shut. No one likes a rat.